Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 14, or just one page over in your bulletin. It's printed there as well. We've been studying, if you're new with us, these these minor prophets, these short books tucked into the end of the Old Testament, the cleaner part of your Bible, the lesser read part of your Bible. And we have uh, made it through Hosea. It's been intense. This is the last chapter. No clapping. This is the last chapter. We start Zephaniah next week. Uh, and we've already heard from Zephaniah and the call to worship. But even as hard-hitting as these minor prophets are, we have noticed on every page that we're driven to Christ, driven to his hope. And we found in Hosea, we've said that this whole book is about a pursuing God, the pursuing grace of a loving heavenly father, one who passionately loves us so much he will not allow us to continue in our sin. We come to chapter 14, it's a short chapter, but it's full, it's full of grace and easier to see than in some chapters. Some have called it the Romans of the Old Testament, because you remember in Romans 5 where where Paul says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So here, he effectively says the same thing, where Gomer my wife, he says, is his wife who turned to prostitution, where Gomer has turned to prostitution, where Israel has turned to prostitution, Judah has turned to prostituting itself with other gods, where sin has abounded, grace will much more abound. With our hearts ready to hear afresh from the gospel, please look with me at Hosea 14, verse 1. <clears throat> Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. I will heal their waywardness, says the Lord, and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon, He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him. And care for him. I'm like a flourishing juniper. Your fruitfulness comes from me. So who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them. But the rebellious stumble in them. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers. And the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Open our eyes, O Lord, 
covered with grief, our our eyes down with shame, blinded with unbelief, whatever covers our eyes, open them that we might see afresh the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. God's people said together, amen. A couple of years ago, a physician at MD Anderson, a hematologist named Emil or J. Freireich, passed away. He was a legend, 93 years old. He trained at the University of Illinois, made his way to medical school. And in those days, in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, leukemia, blood cancer, was thought to be incurable. Children died by the hundreds, bleeding to death. It was a horrific disease. No palliative care available. They were just put in wards and allowed to die. As much mercy as they could was extended to them, but they were concluded that there's no cure, so there's no use even trying. Residents were put through rotations where they would look at these wards and told, matter-of-factly, by their professors, by the medical establishment, there is no cure for this disease. You just have to see it, appreciate it, have mercy. Freireich never accepted that. He never accepted that death had to be. He tried to find a cure. That's why he got fired from his first job at Cook Medical Center in Chicago, Cook County Hospital. He was uh, on uh, a residency there and uh, he went uh, to the death ward where a man was dying of heart failure, tried to bring him to life. He was fired because everybody knows, the medical establishment said, everybody knows when you're put in the death ward, you're going to die. There's nothing you can do for them. So they fired him. Got another job, eventually ended up at at the uh, National Cancer Institute and MD Anderson specializing as a hematologist, and he was determined at least to stop the bleeding for children. His fellow physicians, most of them hated him. They thought he was a quack, a kook, bucking against the trend, the status quo. He was an extremist. He wouldn't accept authority, wouldn't accept things the way they are. He was just insisted trying these kooky methods of trying to stop bleeding in children. They tried to get his medical license revoked, tried to get him fired. And then one day, a child stopped bleeding. The child got better, sent the child home. No child had ever left a leukemia ward, sent him home. In two days, he was playing with his friends in the front yard, They were willing to give him another chance, his colleagues at the hospital. Maybe he's not so crazy after all this platelet therapy. Maybe it works. But then he convinced them he really was crazy because he couldn't rest at night thinking that child is still dying. While he's quit bleeding, there are still cancer cells in his little body. And unless we attack those cancer cells, that cancer is going to kill him. And so he 
called the parents and convinced them that they had to bring their child back in. They had to bring him in once a month for the whole year. And this is the treatment that he would pursue. He would give them a chemotherapy cocktail. But in order to monitor the results, he would have to take an 18-gauge needle and plunge it into the child's shin bone every month without anesthesia. And those parents dared to trust him. His colleagues were up in arms. This man needs to be fired, taken away. He's abusing children. And one year later, the child was cured. Freireich said that there was only one hope of curing those children. It was month by month savagely and repeatedly to bring them to the brink of death. It is the message of the gospel. It is the message of the Christian life that to live means being severe, savagely and repeatedly brought to death to self that you might live in Christ. Savagely and repeatedly brought under the cross, putting self to death, self-justification, self-effort, self-pursuit of salvation, putting it to death in order that you might live in Christ alone. Now, how do you do that? Hosea doesn't leave us guessing. He tells us, he tells us in verse nine, here is the wise way. I'm going to tell you how to become righteous, how to walk in righteousness. And in verse two, here is the answer. Go to him, go to the Lord, turn to him. He said this 25 times in this book, return to the Lord, return to the Lord and take words with you. And here's the script. Take these words. Two things, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously. Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously. What does it mean to take words with you, return to the Lord and say, forgive us our sins? Repentance that is acceptable to the Lord involves knowing a few things. One, it means recognizing that sin is, is worse than bad. Another is that repentance is more than saying, I'm sorry. And grace is more than amazing. Sin is worse than bad. Now, it's it's rather easy, isn't it, to recognize the sins of this Old Testament people. In fact, this seems to be the nadir of Israel's existence. This is the lowest point. They never were this bad, uh, never had been this bad before, and never this bad again. They're bad, but not quite this bad. And it's easy to recognize, isn't it, with our modern eyes and ears? This is the, these are the things we've seen God confront. He says, the, you have cursed, you have lied, you've murdered, you've stolen other people's goods, you've robbed the poor, you've committed adultery, you've compromised with foreign nations, you've cheated in commerce, you've abused your bodies, you've corrupted the ministry, you've worshipped idols, you've engaged in shrine prostitution and human sacrifice. Other than that, you're great Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. 
It's easy for us in our modern eyes and ears to say, those are really bad sins. But do you know in the day they weren't recognized to be such? It's what everybody was doing. The Bible cross-references those sins that are so easily recognized by us as bad, cross-references them to sins that are readily accepted in our culture. Yeah, you, 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 these things that are called abominations and, and sins, you know, the Bible also calls a lying tongue. It's alluded to here. A lying tongue is an abomination. Uh, haughty eyes, pride, that is an abomination and a testable thing in God's sight. Disobedience to parents, gossip, homosexuality, abortion, racism, disregard for the poor, a lack of compassion, indulging your own material wants while the poor go wanting. All of those things are called abominations by God. But we don't recognize them as the really bad sins because they're more culturally accepted. Here's what it involves. Here's what is required to see sin as worse than bad. It is to recognize sin from God's perspective. It is to ask, oh Lord, reveal to me my sin as you see it. Reveal it to me. Show me my sin just as you see it. And when you do, you'll recognize that you also must say more than sorry. Repentance is more than saying sorry. You, you know what that, that looks like. You know what that feels like when someone doesn't take real responsibility for the offense they've They've uh, committed against you. You're at a baseball game or a football game and someone stands up and drops their beer, spills their beer right down your back. What do they say? Sorry. Or you're in the grocery store and somebody runs over your child with their cart, leaves them for dead. Sorry. (laughs) Open their car door into your quarter panel, lacerating it from top to bottom. Sorry. That's offensive, isn't it? They need to say more than I'm sorry and yet... How many of us went to our knees in confession and said, sorry, God, for the sin. Now, how much longer am I going to have to stay here on this hard stone? Sorry. Forgive me my sins. You know, a number of years ago, I got um, real insight into, into expressing our repentance to the Lord from a, from a, a, a fellow who wrote a, a secular book. Aaron Lazar, he passed away a few years ago. He was the head of psychiatry at the University of uh, the um, Medical School, University of Massachusetts. And he wrote a book called On Apology. He was the world expert on apologies. He wrote a 400 and some page book on how to give a good apology because he was convinced that if we made better apologies to one another, most human relationships, most relationships would be cured, healed. And so after surveying the best and worst attempts at apology across history, he said, uh, here are the characteristics of a good apology. Four things. Acknowledgement, remorse, explanation, 
and reparation. Acknowledgement, remorse, uh, explanation, and reparation. Unless Unless those four boxes are checked, the person you have offended is not going to, can't be healed. It's a good guide for expressing uh, repentance to the Lord. Let me give you a, 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 a silly example. Suppose I was sitting in my office in between the two services, trying to decompress a little bit, get my thoughts together again. And one of my daughters was breaking into my office to get a snack as they are prone to do. And I jumped up being startled by them and I punched them. And then I noticed it's my daughter, probably because she's punched me back harder. But then I I realized it's my daughter. So what do I say? I I go back to my desk and say, sorry. No, I can't do that. I have to acknowledge, oh my goodness, I have hit you, my beloved daughter. That is unacceptable. You must feel so betrayed, so offended against. Now, I thought that you were an intruder coming in to steal one of my books. So there's a little explanation for why I acted the way I did. But let me make it up to you. Let me try to repair this. I'll put a, an apology on the front page of the messenger. I'll apologize in the pulpit on Sunday morning. There's acknowledgement. There's remorse. Trying to see it from the other's perspective and explanation, if there is any, that mitigates it to some degree. And then reparation, trying to make it better. Look at what, the, what, the, what, the, what God says to these Israelites to do. Acknowledge that you have sinned against me to the point that you have come to your downfall. You can't get any lower than your downfall. And then to express remorse to me. Look what you have done to me, your father. You've sinned against me, though I've given you every blessing, all my love. No explanation because there is nothing to mitigate what they have done. But there is the promise of reparation. I'm going to change the way I behave. I'm not going to worship idols anymore. I'm not going to look to the nations for support. Our catechism reflects that biblical doctrine of repentance, but it, and it's much better than Adam Lazar's. Adam Lazar's explanation is really helpful, but it's incomplete because it fails to show us the motivation that God alone provides that p- produces true repentance. When you apologize to another person, you just hope that another sinner is going to have compassion on you and accept it. But when you apologize, when you ask forgiveness from God, what is it that motivates you to do that truly and really? Our catechism says it. What is repentance, the definition? uh, Repentance is an evangelical grace or a saving grace whereby a sinner out of apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred for that sin turn from it unto God with full endeavor, with full purpose of, and endeavor after new obedience. Do you hear how it begins? The beginning is with the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. The biblical doctrine of repentance does not begin with, now you folks make yourselves feel bad. Feel bad. You punish yourselves, work yourselves up, 
drag yourselves along the pavement. Make yourselves feel the horrid, wretched sinners that you are. And then maybe God will have you back. No, it begins with apprehending the mercy of God in Christ. And when you become convinced of how much love, how much God has loved you, that he would give his son for you, that his son would endure hell for you, then you'll recognize in contrast the horrid state of your heart, my heart, our motives, our sins. And that will produce true repentance. Zephaniah will show us that. Zephaniah will say, you need to repent. And here's what's going to move you to it. Hear the Lord singing over you in love. Now, let me tell you how that works. Let me warn you of how that might work. For decades, I've urged people to do this. I've said the only way you can get to true repentance is to pray for it. The Bible calls it a gift. The catechism calls it an evangelical grace. You must pray for true repentance. And so pray it specifically this way. Lord, convince me of the Father's love by the sealing work of the Spirit. Convince me of the Father's love, Romans 8. Convince me of the Father's love and in so doing expose the horrid nature of my sin. Now let me warn you what's going to happen, what could happen. I've heard it time and time again in my ministry. Here's the the first testimony I ever heard. It's from a woman who was in my church in St. Louis. Her name was, I'll name her, Laverne Ricks. She's gone on to be with the Lord. Her son is a, a pastor in our denomination, a coordinator of church planting. Laverne Ricks was one of the greatest Christians, one of the most godly women I ever knew. She was a real mother in the Lord to me. She would sit right up near the front and every week, although she knew the Bible better than I did, backwards and forwards, she had her notebook open, her pen, she was taking notes as if she had never heard before. And then she'd be the first up and she would say, you were preaching that sermon right to me. I was so convicted and I would want to say, no, I wasn't preaching it to you. I was preaching to the rest of us. You don't need it. That wasn't true, but she was that way. She lived so humbly. So she took me seriously and started praying, Lord, seal to me the love of God the Father and overwhelm me, break me from my pride, my sin. One day she's walking around the track at Kirkwood High School like she did every morning. And for days she had been praying that prayer. And one day she said, the Lord's love came on me so powerfully. My sin came on me so powerfully. I literally went to my knees on that track and I felt like I couldn't get up for an hour confessing my sins, asking God to have mercy on me compared, given the kind of love that he's poured out on me. apprehension of the love of God, the mercy of God in Christ. Pray for it. You you say, I'm afraid of that. Well, isn't it better? Isn't it better to ask the Lord now, search me and know me and find those harmful ways in me rather than justifying yourself, guarding yourself. You never want to be anybody to make you feel guilty. Nobody's going to point something out. You're going to have your defenses up. You're ready to defend yourself against every, isn't it better? To ask the Lord now, expose my heart, my motives, knowing you can't be condemned, you're in Christ. Isn't it better to have it now than at the great day before the judgment seat? 
Oh, Lord, expose my heart now. Not so that he'll make you more holy because you'll feel worse, but because, so you can love him more deeply. That really gets to the next point. Forgive. Ask him. Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously. Notice what happens. Kind of got ahead of myself talking about the love of God. The first thing you're going to notice. The first thing in receiving this graciousness is that you recognize how much God loves you. And unworthily so. You know, before they before they've even turned, look at this in in verse four, before they have even before there's a report of their repentance. And remember, Gomer, his wife is listening to this, too. He's preaching the same message to Gomer as he is to the rest of Israel. He doesn't say, no, this is for Israel. Gomer, don't you even think about it until you feel a lot worse for what you did to our marriage than you do. He preaches the same message to Gomer. And before they, or she for that matter, have repented, he says in verse four, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. Has turned, I love them freely. You know, some people are afraid to preach the gospel as freely as it is offered in Scripture. Because if they say that to you, if you, if you do that, people will get away with all kinds of wickedness. People will take advantage of that. You need to preach the law to them. You need to preach threats to them. And then once you see them kind of straightening up morally, then bring grace along. That's not the way the Bible works. It's not the way God works. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the revelation of the free grace of God in Christ that drives us to repentance. And being driven to repentance by grace, you would never believe it. It doesn't make law. It doesn't make sense in the real world. People live more obediently. People become more holy when they're convinced of grace. It's a famous sermon. I've talked about it before, preached by a Scottish Presbyterian minister named Thomas Chalmers in the 1800s called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Thomas Chalmers, Scottish Presbyterian was not a Christian when he first became a pastor. And so he was preaching to his congregation, a bunch of country folks, and he was preaching to them, you know, you need to straighten yourself up. You need to do some more good works. You need to work on culture. And his folks, the folks in his congregation knew Christ. They knew Christ in a personal way. They accepted Christ alone for salvation. So they're praying for their preacher. Every week they'd pray for their preacher to be converted. And the way the Lord started to answer that prayer was it made him sick to the point he thought he was going to die. Put him right on his back. He couldn't do any of those things that he'd been telling his people to do. Get out there and do good works and so forth. He couldn't do anything. All he could do, he said, the only command he could keep was believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Oh, did he become a preacher of grace? And so he preached the expulsive power of a new affection. He said in that sermon, the object of the gospel is both to pacify the sinner's conscience and to purify his heart. 
And it is of importance to observe that what mars the one of these objects mars the other also. The best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one. And by the love of what is good, to expel the love of what is evil. Thus it is that the freer the gospel, the more sanctifying the gospel. Forgive all our sins. Receive us graciously. And when he does, with that love, he drives out all lesser loves, including the toxic love of self, defending yourself, justifying yourself, indulging yourself, an embittering self. He replaces it with things like this. He'll be like a do. I'll be, God says, I will be like a do to Israel. I'll convince you of my compassion for the fatherless. And that will make you blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. You'll send down your roots. You'll be stable. Your young shoots will grow. You will multiply. People will want to know your Jesus. It'll be contagious, that joy. The beauty of your countenance. It'll be, the, the splendor will be like an olive tree. It's fragrance like the cedar of Lebanon. People will want you around. They'll want you in their company. They'll want to hear your words because they provide shelter and shade and flourishing instead of barbs and gossip and dissension and bitterness. Flourish like the grain. Blossom like a vine. Fame will be the, like the wine of Lebanon. It'll, the word will get out. That person, there's something different about them. I want what they have. Ephraim, you don't need idols anymore. I want you to be like a green pine tree. To show your fruitfulness comes from me. Isn't that what you want? A life that outlasts you? A life that leaves a legacy of grace? A life that says, that, that person could not be proud, could not be condemning, could not be censorious to those around them because they lived constantly in the presence of a loving God, heavenly father. And they saw themselves in contrast to him. They didn't compare and contrast themselves to other people, grade themselves on a scale, but they contrasted themselves to a holy God who despite his holiness provided full atonement in Jesus Christ. And that love expelled their hate, drove them to service drove them to words seasoned with salt, drove them to sacrifice in order that others might know his fullness. Freireich went on to provide the therapy, as I mentioned, that would lead to a healing of childhood cancer leukemia. Malcolm Gladwell, who among others 
wrote about his life said, what was it about Gladwell? He looked into his biography. He was the son of immigrants. His father committed suicide right after the stock market crash in 1929. His mother uh, worked three jobs to try to provide for her children. She couldn't take care of them. She allowed a, 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 an Irish immigrant to move into her home in exchange for a, a bed and board. And, and that woman became like a mother to Freireich and his siblings. But then her mother married a sorry guy and that guy fired the nanny, Freireich says, he fired my mother. There are a series of miracles. He got a scholarship to college. He went to college. He, he, he made it into medical school. And then the rest of his career is history. What drove him? Gladwell said it was this. He took those children through pain no human being should ever have to go through. Because he recognized in no small part, knowing from his own childhood, that it is possible to emerge from even the darkest hell, healed and restored. Allow the gospel to reveal the hellishness of your heart. Not out of fear. You can't be afraid. Because Jesus has already endured that hell. But let him reveal it. Because he never hurts. God never hurts except for the purpose of healing. Forgive us our sins, O God. And receive us graciously. Thereby making us contagious gossipers of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your amazing grace. Loving us enough to pursue us despite our unworthiness. Oh, search us, O oh God, and know our hearts and reveal every harmful way in us. Whether it's that person here who has not yet received Jesus Christ as his or her personal Lord and Savior. Or it's that one who has run off to the far country living as a prodigal son or daughter. Or it's that Christian who needs to be refreshed with the good news of the gospel. Do it, we pray, O oh Lord. We say with Hosea's name, Hosanna, save us now, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.